0: So, an announcement, listener. Uh, we will be off again next week. Uh, we have stuff driving house stuff. But... Don't bog. But... I'm willing, personally, to do a solo episode if and only if the listener sends in questions. Any any personal questions, any science questions. Uh, I will not be answering in full details on everything but if you can send in questions before wednesday of next week then i'm willing to record something myself where Uh, do they send the questions they send the questions to writing the taurus pod at gmail.com it's also in in the show description josh puts it there every day it is the only person that's used it we've had a uh, few there's a few we've had a few uh, we keep getting spam emails Who whoever signed us up for the job application website that's telling us that FedEx and Walmart are hiring. Appreciate you. Nobody um, wants to
1: work anymore.
0: <laughs> See, the reason I'm interested in doing this, though, I was like, huh, should I ask um, a reliable podcast recorder like Justin to, you know, like co-host or... Mm-hmm. Uh, TC said he loves being on podcasts, right? Yeah, especially if they're going to ask him questions. But that's going to be fun, and I would hate to have fun as Josh is out, (laughs) so instead I want to cause myself pain (laughs) because I'm a masochist. It's like the ultimate amalgamation of like... Like Puritan and Irish, like I need the constant, like <laughs> suffering. So you want a lot of Baylor questions? Uh, sure. Yeah, you can send them my way. Ask. Uh, ask I will divulge. Ask. Ask about what it was like when Eric
1: went to Baylor, and ask him uh, for surfing tips and skateboarding tips. And just like uh, maybe maybe you guys want to talk some like deck recommendations, like how you setting stuff up. You go on with loose trucks. You like your trucks tight. You know, let's, I tightened my trucks uh, two days ago. You know, we we, we, we we like to talk about, you know, your deck setup, and, uh, you know, you shortboard enthusiast. You go on longboard. You're more boogie board styler, knee board, skim board. What kind of wax you using on that thing? You know, we, we want to know all the all these types of things.
0: The, uh, you know, we could even get into either uh, why independent trucks has a a Nazi symbol as their logo and why they have not changed it. Or um, we can recant stories of seeing the Confederate flag zero board hanging up and fast Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, plenty of stuff to talk about.
1: Yeah. Or you can you could probably even uh, tweet these questions directly to Eric just to make sure he gets them
0: yeah you could tweet you could tweet me uh, you can email uh either way you can dm me um and i'll also be tweeting about this so the four people that listen and follow me will see yeah hopefully add, add it add it to your instagram story when you're showing off your spray painting skills there
1: we go what's never ending so me
0: So, that out of the way, have you seen the steaks that you can grow at home from culturing the cells that you swab out of your cheek? I have not seen this. This sounds crazy. <laughs> Would you crazy. eat it?
1: It's like stem cells that made steak
0: out of my own DNA. No, you. It's, it's your own cells. You swab your cheek, then you put your cells into like a... They send you like small little petri dish kind of things with um solution that you know promotes cell growth and you just mix it in there and then it i mean they're not going to be huge they're like the size of maybe a nickel or something but you can grow as many as the nutrient formula allows you to grow this is this is very strange so is it cannibalism that it's it's a weird mix. I would love to try it though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, I mean, I guess it's this cannibalism as much as like swallowing your own saliva, right?
0: Uh, I yeah, but I mean, that's in such you're getting the cells in such small quantity doing that, you know? Yeah. I I guess I'd be down to try. I
1: don't know if it'd be it's probably seems better to try your own than it would be to try someone else's.
0: Hmm. That's a good point.
1: Like maybe yeah, what it's is... not cannibalism if you're trying your own, but if you suddenly like tried your wife's cheek steak, that, that would be cannibalism.
0: See, I don't, it's really weird though, because it's the, the point of it is, you know, you're going to have meat, that's actual meat that does not cause any harm to other animals like there's no farming practices what i want to know is one what is the carbon footprint of this cuz are you negating so much by creating this solution and yeah trucking what's it around? the trade-off uh, which and is may-
1: which is mainly going to probably be the uh The calculation of like, hey, we don't have a bunch of livestock emitting methane.
0: Right. Well, now I'm wondering, though, is this technology going to be advanced to you can get, you know, cow cheek steak. Mm -hmm. So we are going to have a lot of. We're going to swab the cow's
1: cheek Mm -hmm. in order to generate. And then one cow, instead of just, you know, producing the amount of meat that one cow could produce, one cow can produce lots more meat by swabbing its cheeks all the time.
0: Yeah. It's nuts. I don't know. I I would like to try it, but that also reminds me of our current farming practices. <laughs> I, was, I shouldn't laugh. I was listening to the Eat the Rich podcast on Thanksgiving foods. Oh, yeah. I didn't know this, but the way that turkeys are genetically modified to grow so fast, if a human was also <laughs> growing as fast as turkeys do... by 18 months a human would weigh 1500
1: pounds yep well it's the re and turkeys are now such that they they can't even they can't even have sex because of how they grow like they have to be artificially inseminated in order to reproduce more turkeys in the farming scenario like their body their breasts are made so large and their thighs are made so large that their sexual organs can't even reach each other if they wanted if they wanted to reproduce together naturally like they can't even make the connection because of how much genetically modified added meat has been added to their <laughs> bones
0: and their bones have not been modified the genes connecting their bone growth has not been modified no. to account for this weight <laughs> so they like can't even stand and walk
1: well and that's that's sort of the um when you really get it drilled down in the environmental impact on factory farming and stuff like that it turns out you know like having free range animals that might have a happily happier existence you kind of is a little bit worse for the environment than like yeah the efficiency of purely st- factory farming and stuffing these things inside of a small crate so that they can never move and never have to ambulate anywhere and all of that type of thing you know plus you can store a lot more meat in a much smaller area whereas if you're having a lot of free range and grass fed type of farming you're using a lot of land of course in a lot of cases that land can't be used for like agriculture it can only be used for grazing and things like that but when you're putting, you're using all that land for the grazing, and then you got to like slaughter those animals, they're still producing a ton of methane. And then to get the, after the slaughter, like most of the emissions come after the slaughter of everything and just getting it from like the last point of destination to your store. So even like, uh, like uh, you go with like the local foods, like you're, I'm, I'm only going to get local fresh beef or local fresh turkeys from my local farm it doesn't really save you that much emissions-wise because the most emissions emitted by anything is that final few miles from the distribution point to your store. So if it was done at a local farm, it still has the big emission expenditure for that last part of the journey just like all the other stuff does. Um, So you're not really saving too much emissions-wise. Now, if it's about like... We really want to take care of animals and we want them to have the best possible life expectancy even if we're going to be using them as livestock for food, then that's a different argument. But if you're talking about like the climate argument, then you might want to like do a more factory farming than yeah it's 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 a tough it's a tough argument to try to have because like uh the one that's best for the climate is not necessarily best for the animals and the one that's best nec- best for the animals is not necessarily best for the climate
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's such a weird trade-off um but uh i typically just go with whatever's cheapest <laughs>
1: <laughs> well yeah you know uh and and like we talked about with the oceans episode like even if you're like oh well, if I just become pescatarian and I'm only eating fish, like it's pretty not great for the environment
0: either. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. It's tough. I try to mix in more fish. I it's you can't win. The thing is you can't win. Yeah, you, you can really eat. can't.
1: Uh if the on, the only way to win is to figure out a way to more efficiently photosynthesize the energy from the Sun into a food product that we could eat that would still nourish our brains which take up so much of our caloric energy intake like or we just you know devolve into like much smaller brain creatures and then we don't have that caloric trade-off and then we can just graze on grass and it doesn't matter
0: <laughs> uh, we've all heard uh- Richard Dawkins, Mount Improbable cannot be <laughs> climbed back down.
1: Oh, it's, it's kind of like what we're going to talk about today with the Australian megafauna. You know, like uh, to, to get a wombat that's bigger than a hippopotamus, um, there has to be some evolutionary trade off. And part of that trade off is cognition and brain size. Like, in order to be able to maintain that type of a body size as a mammal, um, and there has to be you know some other trade off and this trade off still exists like with koalas and stuff in australia where they have pretty low cognitive ability in comparison to other types of um, mammalian species um, because they kind of have, have de evolved from a larger species of of koala that used to exist and so now like koalas have such a fragile like brain structure like if they turn their head too fast they can give themselves a concussion <laughs> 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 but usually they're like so doped up on the leaves that they're eating uh, you know they it doesn't matter to them but like uh, they're not they're not like uh, even though they climb trees and they, they eat leaves and they kind of act like primates sometimes a cross between a bear and a primate they have no nothing On the cognitive abilities of, like, bonobos and other, like,
0: tree-dwelling mammals
1: that have evolved.
0: Yeah, they do kind of fill the niche of, like, monkeys, right? Right, for that, for Australia, because
1: how Australia, like, just developed in isolation for... So many millions of years before before <laughs> yeah. any humans or anything showed up, and this is this this uh, topic is kind of cool too, because like we stopped with dinosaurs at sixty five million years ago when the asteroid hits, and we talked about how like the um, continents had kind of settled into where their existing map locations are now. There was a lot more like waterways and things like that, but the general location of all the continents is where they are now 65 million years ago. And the thing that gets um, mammals to Australia um, and allows them to sort of repopulate that entire continent after the dinosaurs have died off is at the very end, after the asteroid hits, the tip of South Africa is touching antarctica and antarctica is touching australia so just like uh, we talk about the land bridge between asia and alaska where early humans like migrated into the americas um after after the dinosaurs there is a temporary land bridge that connects the tip of south africa to australia through antarctica And at the time the dinosaurs go out, you have a lot of these very small uh, marsupial like creatures that are populating South Africa or South America. Sorry, I didn't mean South Africa. I meant South America earlier. Um, And from South America, these little small possum like marsupial tiny rodents. bridge that gap from the tip of South America, cross the ice bridge or the land bridge that is in Antarctica and get onto Australia. And they start populating Australia because Australia is sort of like a untapped resource place right now at this time in the world because it's kind of been isolated from where it's separated off of Africa and India a long time ago. And it's just been kind of off on its own, and all the dinosaurs that were there are all dead. And so these little marsupials like enter this landscape that is almost untouched by anything. And then from like 50 million years ago until 45,000 years ago, they All those creatures evolve in pretty much isolation on Australia as it keeps drifting away from Antarctica, drifting away from Africa, drifting away from Indonesia in total isolation. And you get these incredible creatures that are not anywhere else on the planet um, because it's its own ecosystem. It's its own evolutionary isolated place on the planet until humans show up 45,000 years ago.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a weird uh, I I was getting tripped up too because that supercontinent Gondwana of South America, Africa, India, Antarctica and Australia um it existed like they were pushed together and then they formed with the northern continents to make Pangaea and then drifted apart again. So it it exists both before and after pangaea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i i like you know we spoke about pangaea during the dinosaurs but it's so weird to imagine like there's there's so much more time before then like yeah like the what dinosaurs is the one-
1: are relatively recent when you start <laughs> to look at the geologic time scale. Yeah, i mean
0: <laughs> i know like cambrian is wild but then you have like rodinia or whatever that's like this the massive supercontinent of like all of the land masses before um those broke up Mm -hmm. (laughs) before pangea way before pangea so it's and then there was like a strip of like land like all on like the southern pole Mm -hmm. (laughs) i I, it's so weird yeah Um, and at
1: the time when the asteroid hits and stuff it's not like a Antarctica is not a big block of ice and glaciers. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's somewhat tropical. Like yeah, it's it's land. There's trees. There's you know big plants, big ferny plants everywhere, and there's dinosaurs that were down there like hanging out. <laughs> they weren't like yeah. ice dinosaurs. They were like just same dinosaurs. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've got like a map here in my notes that shows gondwana with different species that have found and sort of like where fossils were found throughout the whole thing and you've got fossils of ferns that were found in south america africa madagascar india antarctica and australia but in antarctica it is like through the middle it is like (laughs) it's not even like you know the edges where you think oh it might be a little warm The whole thing was livable. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Australian fauna just in general before even megafauna uh, is so interesting because it's, as you said, developed in isolation. Um, And for whatever reason, marsupials split from the branch that then placental animals would develop from. Or, Or let me go back a little bit. When we were talking about like those proto mammals that looked like dinosaurs before the dinosaurs rose to prominence Mm -hmm. um, from then until like 125 million years ago, anything that would turn into a mammal, anything you would consider a mammal was laying eggs. Yeah. So it's, it's not like they looked like lizards, but they had, you know, like live birth or whatever. Even though some reptiles kind of have live birth, it's Mm -hmm. a weird like that's not a great classification of things. So, when you consider that marsupials developed, this is a huge advancement in in I don't know birth, I guess for mammals. Yeah. Uh, So you have the development of marsupials in South South America or North America? South America south america and then they move to north america as well but then they start migrating all over the place and they can't compete very well with the
1: placental mammals Mm -hmm. like the placental mammals obviously dominate which is why like you don't see why why it only ended up like that the possum still exists in north and south america as far as marsupials are concerned like the placental mammals were much more dominant But because you got a couple little proto-possums that walked the land bridge to Australia, they found this island, this eventual island continent that had no other placental mammals on it pretty much. And we're like, hey, we can just make a space that's
0: just for us marsupials where we're not getting competed (laughs) out of existence. (laughs) Well, that's what's so strange about it. And I couldn't find a super clear answer on it. So maybe you have like better research on it it was difficult to look up and when you're looking up like when did australia isolate then they're like COVID 19 outbreak <laughs> causes isolate and so you're like all right great um so when australia separated from gondwana it still had to be somewhat connected because there are fossils of some placental mammals in australia from like 55 million years ago mm-hmm. but uh, australia Is proposed to have separated from Gondwana. What was it like between a hundred to like 50 million years ago? Yeah, the beginning of the isolated separation, where it was pretty much only connected by a potential of a land bridge from South from Antarctica. Okay. Uh, And uh, marsupials evolved 125 million years ago, placental mammals didn't evolve until 65 million years ago yeah so you, that's why you've got like you've got this 60 million year jump um, you know head start for marsupials ahead of placental mammals uh, and it makes but,
1: sense from an evolutionary standpoint that you would go from egg laying to giving birth to the very earliest possible form of a fertilized embryo and then you stick it inside of a pouch inside of your belly in order to gestate it because you don't have the organs inside your body to gestate it and then like later on you would develop the instead of having a pouch outside your body to gestate you would evolve the ability to just keep the baby inside you you don't have to take a you know, newly, newly created embryo out of your body in order to make a baby, you just leave it there and then the baby gestates inside of you. So it makes sense that, that placental mammals would be the later stage and it wouldn't, they wouldn't be a point before marsupials.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a more (laughs) well-crafted baby, I guess. Um, but the, the gestation is wild on marsupials like the the benefit to it and the reason that it seemed to have thrived in australia is uh you know if you compare it to a placental mammal and you know like reptiles and egg laying mammals also thrive in australia for the same sort of reason if times start getting really hard and food is suddenly scarce there's a drought or whatever or you know a new sort of predator starts coming closer something something that becomes difficult (laughs) the way this article put it is baffling to me because it sounds so callous but i guess it's true that the mother can then jettison (laughs) the newborn from her pouch she's not just
1: she's not tethered to it with an umbilical cord for like the entire time
0: (laughs) yeah so they can just leave the babies and you know conserve the energy so that they can go find food or whatever um same thing with you know reptiles or egg laying things is once those eggs are laid you kind of you know you protect them but if times start getting tough well (laughs) i'm the one that's living so you just go off uh, but the other benefit to marsupial development is their gestation is so short that you could have a baby that just left the pouch, another baby that uh, has just gone into the pouch, and the mother can be pregnant again. Uh. The gestation period for, there's like a mouse-like uh, marsupial called the striped face dunart. Its gestation period is 11 days. (laughs) So from conception to when it crawls out into the pouch is 11 days. Then it spends, you know, like 300 or 400 days in the pouch. Like sometimes, sometimes it's less than that, like Mm -hmm. half a year or whatever. But on average, it's only 26.5 days from conception to the time the embryo or you know, whatever you call it, like new neonate or whatever goes into the pouch to further develop. Um, and throughout that gestation, the, I was wondering, like, is it just the same like milk that they're drinking? No, the marsupial mothers have, they progressively change the milk composition too uh-huh. of like proteins and fats and carbohydrates throughout the gestation or it? they call it, you know, postpartum. <laughs> so you're getting um, you're
1: getting the big fatty baby nutrients early on, and then you're getting the more protein rich stuff maybe later. Yeah,
0: and around like 100 to 200 days, uh, or no, I'm sorry, or after 200 days, that's when it first exits the pouch. So then the neonate starts mixing in, like eating some herbage with, like drinking milk in the pouch. So whenever you see like you know a baby kangaroo that's like pretty fully formed but hanging out in a kangaroo's pouch, that's it's like <laughs> it's a separation anxiety kangaroo <laughs> <laughs> right but again, I mean, we spoke about Get this off like, your mom's you know, teats how many how many episodes like episode three about the Tasmanian wolf? Yeah, but this is just it's insane that every marsupial does this sort of development. Um, and Australia is home to like two thirds of the 330 marsupials. Mm -hmm. So they thrive there because Australia went through some pretty rough conditions throughout its isolation and prolonged isolation that it was able to diversify, but also not diversify much. Right. That's. And like the arid conditions
1: and the multiple ice ages that happened between 50 million years ago and 45,000 years ago when humans first show up, Mm -hmm. you had like uh, these incredible like climate changing cycles during that time. Because, you know, you're talking like 50 million years of time and um, you had still... The megafauna, these things that started out as smaller than possums that were pretty much just one very specified species that show up there, show up and because of adaptive radiation, because now there's like, oh... I don't have to rely on just one food source. I don't have to share my food source with a bunch of other things anymore. Look at this. Look, there's. I could be the uh, little possum that's just going to eat bugs. And let's see what happens if I'm the one who just specializes in eating bugs and what happens evolutionarily over 50 million years if I just eat bugs. And like another one was like, no, no, I'm going to eat trees. Let's see what happens to me if I just eat trees for 50 million years. And... So, you had a lot of like incredible niche specialization happen during that time. And yet, you don't, through the climate cycles and the ice age cycles, you don't get like dramatic die offs or huge extinction events that are continent wide because, oh man, these marsupials just couldn't handle this 10,000 year cold period. Or, oh man, it got too hot. There were too many, you know, brush fires, too much. Natural um, storm type of conditions, and that wiped out this huge swath of them. There was an extinction level event. Um, the The big disappearance of a lot of these things that evolved over fifty million years seems to coincide exactly with when humans first show up from like the Indonesian archipelago, the first sort of seafaring peoples that came over from um, pre-agricultural time like there were fishing villages you know like before when when everyone was a hunter and gatherer um, the first sort of communities were built on coastlines where people could fish daily for their sustenance and thus they didn't have to move around very much so you had these trading spots in the world that were these small little fishing villages and that's why these people um, were some of the very first explorers. like this, this exploration of Australia, from the Indonesian people and the exploration from um, Indonesia to like Hawaii and uh, eventually even getting to South America um, over the ocean, that happens like before people from Asia walk across the land bridge into North America. So this is like one of the first great migrations of humans, but it's happening before the great migration that we all consider to talk about because we're like North American kids. So we always talk about when the first people came over from Asia and those became what we consider Native American peoples. Um, this is this is before that, and um, so you there there's sort of conjecture in the. Um, Archaeological community and in the scientific community about necessarily what causes this sort of mass die off 45,000 years ago of the Australian megafauna. And we're not talking about just a few things go extinct. We're talking about there before 45,000 years ago, there's 24 distinct species that are bigger than, you know, 200 pounds on average.
0: There, there's like what a uh, wombat that weighs like 3,000 kilograms yeah yeah there's it's a a a size that's...
1: of a size of a hippopotamus but it's a wombat <laughs> <laughs>
0: there's a kangaroo that's twice as tall as a human
1: yeah there's a there's a giant carnivorous duck that's like eight feet tall it's basically like <laughs> a dinosaur with a duck mouth but it's a it's a duck it's like a, a, it's like a giant duck but it would like it's carnivorous
0: <laughs> so. yeah there, oh the there's also like that this may be like that tall kangaroo too but one of them it just has one claw on its foot like mm-hmm. and it can jump what was it like over two meters so it can jump like six feet in the air so that it's got a st- down slashing motion with just these two feet that are just come to an exact like razor point
1: yeah there's uh there's a lion it's not actually related to any of the big cats from africa but it through convergent evolution this marsupial possum 65 million years ago evolved into a lion (laughs) what what looks and operates like a lion has all the features of a lion has has a retractable thumb claw on each of its hands, which makes it even uh, even more, you know, gnashing and deadly than a lion. Has a bite strength two times that of the largest lion on on the savanna. That's gone too. But the the, uh, the reason, you know, some people will point to like climate factors why these things all go extinct. But, you know, that kind of runs into the problem of, hey, there were all these even more extreme climate events throughout this period before humans showed up, and that didn't cause the extinction of any any of these creatures. Also, with with this big die-off of these things 45,000 years ago, if it was a climate-induced type of catastrophe, like we talked about previously, you see the effects of a climate— um, type of extinction event that shows up in the ocean too. That shows up with the big creatures, but it can also show up in some of the small creatures. It shows up in the plant record. It shows up in all of these things. And the record of this die off 45,000 years ago is pretty specifically targeted to these big megafauna type of animals. And then shortly after they all go, then there's A collection of smaller type of animals that go extinct, but nothing happens in the oceans, nothing happens to any of the coastal creatures, nothing happens to any of the plant life. So it's led more anthropologists and archaeologists to to surmise that the decimation of the megafauna had a lot to do with the arrival of these early Homo sapiens 45,000 years ago, And partially that has to do with the fact that when Homo sapiens are evolving over a 200,000 year period in Africa and Asia, they're evolving from like the early Homo um, branch and those, you know, bipedal creatures are evolving alongside all of the megafauna of Africa and Asia. All of the giant wildebeest and the lions that are still there and the elephants and the rhinos and the hippos, all these giant creatures that are all part of these continents and still are around, um, humans are evolving with them in that environment. So it's, even even though we're getting smarter and smarter than they are and getting a better ability to hunt bigger game, they are also aware of our existence throughout the time when we were really stupid and they know to avoid us. They know, oh, that bipedal tiny creature over there where they're gathering on the hill, that's danger. We're going to avoid that. They have this sort of um, collective knowledge of our existence Because Australia is this isolated mass for 50 million years and all of a sudden humans just show up on the shore one day, 45,000 years ago, none of these huge creatures have any idea like what a human being is. And thus they're probably not scared of them and it makes it pretty easy for, for them to be hunted. Two, like we talked about, when a mammal has to get to these giant sizes, there's evolutionary trade-offs. So we talked about like with elephants, like if you're a placental mammal and you get really big, you can maintain brain uh, brain size like an elephant does. But there are other trade-offs you have. Like your offspring, you can only have one at a time. And like gestation is 24 months or longer. So in order to be able to like maintain a reproductive rate that keeps your numbers up without you dying off, that gets pretty hard. And so if you have like this giant wombat, that's the size of a hippo that has a super small brain and is not scared of human beings at all. And it's gestational rate because of its size is probably along the same lines as, as an elephant is, even though it's a marsupial, It doesn't take, you don't have to like go have thousands of people show up to kill all of them in a big, fast swath in order to wipe them out pretty quickly. You just have to kill them at a quick enough rate that they can't out reproduce your hunting. And then in a few thousand years, they'll be all gone. There's no, it doesn't take a huge amount of human beings to do this.
0: Yeah. And if they can also, you know, get rid of their offspring like you have to have at that point when you're that size a postpartum you know neonate you have to carry it around for probably around the same amount of time like you're saying so that means you need a safe place that you can have this thing developing external to yourself (laughs) like Mm -hmm. in the pouch which is just additional weight and more energy spent like it's It's very difficult to do at that size. Um, And one thing, though, I did find, and I wanted to just dispel this real quick, I, like, found a video that was complaining, not complaining, but, you know, it's scientists. I have an opposite view, so, of course, they're (laughs) uh, just whiny babies. (laughs) Um, But they, they tried to lay the case out that they... Don't blame humans for the extinction of this megafauna. They say, oh, they were going extinct and then the humans showed up. Um, even though it's pretty obvious that humans showed up before this massive die-off. But their, like, sole uh evidence for it is that there's no human remains in the fossil pits that they look at. Oh. <laughs> and one the humans arrived like on the northern part of australia which uh is known to have very acidic soil so fossils don't really exist there anyways yeah um two though uh ancient humans developed like burial practices a long time ago (laughs) um like they would, you know, leave their dead in caves or trees or hills or sink them in lakes or cremate them. So you're not going to get a whole lot of fossils from that. But even just like regular burials began like 120,000 years ago. So when you're just saying, well, there's no humans in this lake bed that has all of these other, you know, fossils in it, it's like, yeah, that, of course there wouldn't be because they wouldn't be putting their dead there. Um, but what you also get around this time is they've dated cave drawings in that northern part of Australia to like 50,000 years ago. And, uh, I say cave drawings, they're like, you know, they're pictures mm-hmm. on the wall. And the, they had traced like the migration of those people, um, and they had brought like a drawing uh, culture with them from, I think it was like Western Asia. I can't exactly remember. Uh, But they brought this drawing tradition. So it's like similar cultural drawings and stuff. And they have depicted what they can sort of tell is like that giant kangaroo and the marsupial lion. And like all of these different things that they had when they first saw these drawings thought were like mythical creatures that they had just come up with Mm -hmm. but it's like why would you just like fictitiously draw animals on a cave wall
1: oh yeah and like they're part of the um the dream stories that the aboriginal people still talk about like it's still part of their oral tradition of the aboriginal people i think there's a th- and this is an issue too when you know we talk about if we talk about uh, the later emergence of human beings across the land bridge into north america and the complete desolation of the megafauna and megaflora in america that associated with the first migration of humans across from asia um there i think there is like a A political aspect to the scientific analysis of this Um, because when you're talking about either native americans or the aboriginal people of australia there's this sort of cultural idea that these people because they descend from the ancient originators of this land always were caretakers of the land and they communed with nature and they like had some sort of peace arrangement with all the animals so it was like the Garden of Eden and they slept in they slept with the lions and they played with the sheep and like there was no there there was this sort of like utopia uh, amongst amongst the people and I, I don't know if it's because you don't want to, Put a negative connotation on them now because of all of the sort of past negative connotations that were done during colonial periods, putting towards these people. So now there's this knee jerk reaction to be like, oh, we have to be, we have to be more reverent about their communal nature and their their ability to be with the land and with the animals and stuff like that. But what the actual history of human beings is, <laughs> is that we got smart and we got smart enough to work together to take down big game. And we then did that everywhere. We went every place that we went, once we got smart enough to take down the biggest game, all we wanted to do was go other places and take down the biggest game. And this is true for 200,000 years. So, um, like, there's a reason there's no more mammoths. There's a reason there's no more giant sloths in North, North America. There's a reason there's, you know, like we, if it wasn't for like a, a, a bit of luck of noticing that out of the feces of giant sloths in California grew avocado trees, like we would have not had avocados either because we, that was part of the extinction. You wipe out giant sloths in America, you wipe out avocados. Like There's a direct one-to-one relationship between giant sloths eating avocados, pooping out those giant seeds, and then from their excrement, the next tree grows. So if you kill all the giant sloths, you basically kill off the ability for avocados to promulgate through the throughout the forest. <laughs> but there so lots of those types of things happen. There's lots of plant life that completely goes extinct because you get rid of the megafauna and the sort of balance that works with the animals that are feeding off it and spreading the seeds and doing all that type of stuff. And this happens all over the planet. And it's not this is not to say that oh uh the aboriginal and the native peoples, you know, were, were terrible and they were bad for the environment or something like that. I'm not trying to say that. I'm trying to say, I guess, if you want to look at the biggest picture version of this, the way to approach like, uh, environmental issues and issues about, um, prolonging animal health and not and not giving into animal cruelty and providing like long-term solutions for climate is not to think that the true nature of human beings is some sort of utopian altruistic nice to nice to nature type of agreement that we've had that has never been our nature that has never been who we are as a species the thing to embrace is the fact that all we've ever done has been to outsmart the rest of the environment and then quickly take it and mold it to ourselves. And in doing that, it's only it's taken us, you know, 200,000 years to finally realize the damage that we do. But embrace the fact that we just understand our nature and so with that thought process we can then counteract it rather than being self-righteous and saying, we need to get back to the ways of the original people who really cared about the land, because that's a false narrative.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's interesting because the, I think the way to frame it, um, you know, maybe this isn't the perfect way to frame it, but a way that I can think about it is not trying to, um, I don't even know if, for some reason my brain wants to say castigate. I don't even know if that word works in this circumstance. But castigate, like the a native people of somewhere for some reason, um, wanting to have, obviously you're not trying to say they were horrible morally or whatever for mm-hmm. doing these things because humans all over have done it. But you also are not discounting the fact that, um, you know, colonialism was decimating people. Right. Uh, it was not like, so, like the the history of humans, from my view, is trying to... Dominate's not the exact right word, but like control the environment to benefit humans. Right. And that with, would with,
1: be by by skipping all the evolutionary steps. Like one right. of the not to totally interrupt you, but the one of the things that is a cool example is for all the other mammals to evolve to go back into the ocean and then become the biggest dominant players in the ocean, like the dolphins and the whales. They had to go back on get out of the ocean and go onto land, learn how to breathe air then turn around, walk back into the ocean, then go through the incredibly long evolutionary process of waiting for their like breathing apparatus to go from the front of their face to the top of their head so that they could breathe in the ocean better, hold their breath for longer, then they could get giant and massive. So you're talking about hundreds of millions of years of evolution to be able to do that. For a human being to dominate the ocean and use it, it took much less time. It took like from the very earliest homo sapien to the first ones that were just using boats to navigate across archipelagos and get from Indonesia to Australia, you're talking 50,000 years.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And you just did it with your brain. You didn't have to like wait around for your nose to evolve to the top of your head and get fins and get like a blubbery body mass and do all of these other stages in order to be able to do that. Just that journey, that journey right. took no time at all because we were able to outsmart the journey rather than wait for evolution to make it happen.
0: Yeah, exactly. Even though it is a product of evolution, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's a, it's a weird trade-off, but the thing with like that perspective is the people are trying to, you know, dominate nature in a way that it benefits people, not destroy nature. Right. Whereas colonialism is trying to dominate and destroy a people. Mm -hmm. So it's not putting these two things on the same, you know, saying that they're equal um, or the one is justified just as much as the other. Um, But the, the thing that's kind of interesting and i i sent that video to you yesterday um one aspect that seems to have been i don't know it's it's well supported as a reason that megafauna might have started dying off in australia is like the fire stick burning Mm -hmm. or fire stick farming um which just goes to show that people are trying to control the land and nature in a way that benefits people. Um, and I found this process really interesting that there's like this farming practice that is uh, I guess big among Aboriginal Australians and essentially it's like a, a they call it like a cool burning fire. Um, they also call it like cultural burning but it's a ritualistic burning of vegetation And the reason for this is to, you know, clear out some land so that it could be, uh, developed agriculturally or, um, as, as some people say, it like helps germinate the seeds in the soil, Mm -hmm. uh, or clears out underbrush. Like there's some Western Australia, um, Aboriginal groups that burn, uh, through their forests, and it's like a slow rolling fire and like a minute after the fire passes over the ground, it's cool to the touch. So it's, it's not like an out of control burning. This is, you know, people do this in the U S too sometimes. Um, but they clear out the underbrush so that they can move through the forests of like Western Australia. And the, the practice over time and um, I guess maybe intentionally but not over-intentionally meant that the ritualistic burning of Australia for vegetative and farming practices meant that some of the plants that supplanted the burned-down trees or whatever are either more fire-resistant or fire-dependent. You know, like... They require fire in order to germinate the seeds and everything. Yeah, you get those conifers
1: like, that have to have the fire to pop open their pine cones in order to release right. the seeds, or the seeds never get released.
0: Well, around like the early twentieth century, through colonialism, this practice essentially stopped, and now uh, it appears that like the how Australia every year has. M- worse and worse fires is because all of the trees are like fire dependent. So they're like oh. ready to go up in flame. And there hasn't been this ritualistic control of underbrush to keep the fires from getting out of control because there's, you know, we've all seen fire. There's different levels of fire mm-hmm. between your Bic lighter or a house going up. And and it's such a fine line between having that under
1: control and oh my god it's out of control (laughs) (laughs) right so
0: but it's the video was really cool because in adelaide it was the first like cultural burning in like i don't know over 100 years in a city center and it's like an aboriginal group of people that do this cultural burning through a park like a city-owned park that had too much underbrush and it was very interesting because as you say like people were not living in this utopian harmony with nature but once people arrived in the current aboriginal people that are describing it they're showing how they developed a process to to be in harmony with nature under their purview yeah yeah. i suppose so that's kind of the difference between these things is they're dominating nature but again not to destroy it to allow it to benefit humans in a way like there's no point in killing off every single animal in Australia if that means you're not going to have any food but there is you know if there's these predators or we can eat some of these things and then they happen to go extinct from overhunting, or you're burning their habitats um, to grow vegetation it sort of makes sense that humans are doing it for the benefit of humans not just to kill all these things off like in north america they did with buffaloes essentially right
1: and you have like um you have this period of transitioning between being hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural and like uh community or sort of village faring peoples and when you have persisted on the planet for almost a quarter of a million years as hunter-gatherers, you've developed a very sort of robust way of survival because you have a wide variety of food types, a wide variety of dietary preferences. If we are hunting in this one area and all of a sudden we don't see the thing that we've been eating for the last five years anymore, we can just go to another animal and eat that thing. Or if the, if we've been in a forest that is full of walnuts, that's great. But if we have to move because of pressures from another tribe or environmental pressures or whatever, we can find another nut to eat. If we move, you know, a few miles down the, down the way. Um, So, the idea, I think there's all the other thing that's going on is like there's not a comprehensive picture of the ecosystem at the time of any uh, held by any of the individuals because they're only very myopically worried about their group and where we're going to move over between today and tomorrow. And are those pasture lands on the other side going to be more nutritious than the pasture lands we were spent the night in two nights ago type of thing. And so you're not, you have no concept of like, oh my God, if we can, if we kill the last giant wombat right now, there's not going to be any more giant wombats or or that's not even a thing that is a, that is a consideration for you 45,000 years ago, especially if your way of life has been. We're outnumbered by animals and plants by huge factors on this planet as human beings. So they're they're not gonna run out. Like wait, they're gonna run out. <laughs> there's not we're not gonna run out of this stuff. <laughs> so so there there's also like to think also that native peoples or early sapiens had this some had some sort of forethought or mindset of like we know to be good to the planet and be good to animals so that we can preserve all life forms for as long as possible and let them and not bring about early extinction of any of these life forms. Like that is not a thought process that even existed. Like that is something that takes many years. Like people don't think things that can go exist. Even when Darwin is writing origin of the species like the concept of even like mass extinctions is only a hundred years old. so yeah, right. so so to it's always important to kind of think about that and not put in both ways. One, we have are just now coming to a lot of these realizations. But two, there's no way that people, even earlier than ourselves or in the last century, even had the wherewithal to contemplate things the way that we contemplate them now. So to put those sort of thought processes retroactively on large swaths of people as a way of like being like, oh man, these were just the noble savages that, uh, that knew how to preserve mother nature the way that we can't, like that is not part of, part of any of their consciousness at all whatsoever that doesn't exist for them.
0: Yeah, the preservation of places. I mean, it, I wouldn't even say it. It doesn't seem like a. It, I'm speaking way out of turn here, but like a main tenet of things. There's, there's a difference between living in harmony with nature in the way that you, you know, under your own demands and preserving nature in its pristine. You know, whatever. It's kinda of like with Yellowstone, like how they their official messaging is like this is untouched by humans. Right, right. But like <laughs> humans have been going there except, for thousands for, of years. Except for except for the twenty five thousand years before we found it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but like the preserving nature, that's I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but does that not come from like royalty having their own like nature preserves to go to? right right like,
1: do do you think like the the gardens in front of like the palace is preserving
0: nature because you chopped all the shrubs into like a maze <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, so it's it's like a warped concept in and of itself already that it's not something that exists or I guess existed um obviously the the terrors of colonialism certainly screwed things up way worse than right you know uh for the people living there so it's kind of it's one of those things that's like it's a weird trade-off to to start thinking about and working through but the human or the history of humans is such that humans have always gone to places and warped it to work for them otherwise you know where would they go like <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I think that this is a bit sidetracked, but in reading stuff about the different Aboriginal people in Australia as uh, backup research for this, and this is another thing that also happens with Native Americans in the United States, but because that we have a colonial mindset that arrives and then we our understanding is clouded by the colonial judgment of the original colonists that arrived on the land and first observed the people. Um, It's a often mistake either for the good or for the bad that when we look at Aboriginal people, we view them as a monolith. Like, Oh, it was yeah, this yeah. one tribe that came over 45,000 years ago and then they populated Australia when it's actually like multiple waves of small bands of people that come over over thousands of years and Australia has the Aboriginal people like settle all over the continent, a continent that is Larger than Europe. <laughs> and they have over 250 different languages amongst all of the people that lived there before colonial times. So to think that like all of these people were operating in like harmony and in concert with each other and with nature until like these darn colonists showed up and ruined the utopia is not. You you have to think about it with the same type of complexity and diversity as you do, you know, all of like someone from Eastern Hungary versus someone from Portugal. Like they're not going to you could say, oh, yeah, they're Europeans, (laughs) but they have nothing, almost nothing in common with each other. So you have to look at the same people that are doing these different types of things to the land from the hunter gatherer times They have the same levels of diversity, the same levels of disagreements with each other, the same, like, okay, you guys stay on that side and we'll stay on this side and we'll just agree not to come close to each other because we know it's going to cause conflict. I mean,
0: even, like, with the story of Thanksgiving, like, were the Native people not sort of trying to ally with the the colonists because they were also in a dispute with other, like, tribes? Like, so it's you know, it's, it's all working in different ways. Um, and then having, as you describe, like the colonialist kind of mindset to it is detrimental because then you start viewing it as just like, you know, it's not like a guilt trip for yourself or it shouldn't be because none of us were there deciding any of these things, but you also need to not think about it as like, well, that's the other people. Mm-hmm. They're just the other group of people. Um, that's, you know, the, this book you're reading sounds really interesting. That's just going through like the history of humanity. Cause it's, it is difficult to consider, you know, like even the, the colonists, they were burning people because somebody, you know, sneezed and they thought a witch put a spell on them. <laughs> like, like they're in the same town yeah. and they're killing yeah. each other. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And that's the other thing to just know is how however advanced we all feel like right now, um, the we haven't made any real evolutionary advancements in our species in the last 50,000 years. Like there's not like you can look at the skeleton of someone from 50,000 years ago and it's not there's not like some oh my God, here's the big thing that happened in the last 50,000 years that sets us apart from the other people we got this new extra smart bone that they don't have or something Well, I think there's not there's, there's been like there's not huge differences between us and those people.
0: Like genetically it's so similar that I think that like if you took, you know, somehow had an embryo of a human from 50,000 years ago uh, and you know hatched it the way that humans are born <laughs> marsupialed um, it that you would be able to teach them everything that we currently do. Like they would be able to learn at the same capacity. Um, They could go through school. They could use computers like, you know, so it's, that's, what's wild too is humans had such a jump in evolution and I guess, you know, brain size and everything. And then for the last 50,000 years, it's been like mostly societal and, technological developments
1: yeah it's it's been migration to to eventually coming up with society and because like it doesn't take a lot of humans to go from africa and then get all the way to north america especially if everyone's a hunter-gatherer and like you're just in your little group and you want to stay like you know 30 miles away from the next group And so like you move 30 miles further from where the last group was and then the next group comes along and they're like, oh, we're going to keep our distance from them and we'll move 30 more miles. Just doing that math, it takes just a few thousand years to like get people all around the planet. And that's just a small handful of people who are hunting and gathering their way along. Not like, oh, we're establishing a city and then we're going to trade and then we're going to establish a new city and then we'll trade with that and then grow these metropolitan type of areas. That comes way later. like. But the people that are doing the walking and uh, doing all of this initial sort of voyager type of work, um, they're exactly the same as you, as you and me. That's that's the craziest part of it all is that to think it's it's easy to think about them as some sort of like primitive cave people who who couldn't who could only talk in grunts or something because they had no like concept. But no, they had all their own languages. They had all of it. They had their own religious practices, their own spiritual beliefs. Like (laughs) it all existed. It was all happening. Just no one. We don't. It's tough to find the record and you know pinpoint down the specifics of that stuff because even if they were writing things down in their language on like wooden tablets and things like that none of that stuff's going to last it's all going to go right. away um so we only have stuff like burial remains that then we can infer ooh this was like a spiritual burial or this was ooh maybe these kids died because of you know higher child death rate, or maybe that means kids were sacrificed as part of some sort of ritual. You can only infer those things. You can't really absolutely ever know like what the specifics of their religious tenets were or their spirituality or their morality or whatever the things that drove them. But we can also know from their remains that there's nothing remarkably that makes them any different than who we are right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the art thing is is always fascinating to me, too, uh, because it's that shows such a level of like. I don't know, trying to preserve and communicate something in a way when you have a mostly oral tradition to begin with that you're like, no, this is so important that we got to, you know, find a way to depict it. Um <laughs> That's just wild to me.
1: uh, Off topic, but uh, last week, I think it was on Dan Carlin's Twitter account, Dan Carlin of Hardcore History. He was posting some pictures from, they were like drawings that a child had done from over 2,000 years ago. Or it was like BC, like 50 BC or something like that. And it looks exactly like what a two or three-year-old's drawings would be right now. But it was like, of a of a a bunch of battles on a horse and people getting their like arms chopped off with swords and stuff yeah. but it's exactly like it looks exactly the same like if you asked a, a asked a preschooler to like oh draw you know a scene uh, you, use your imagination and draw me a picture like it's it looks exactly the same like the All the characters are just heads with like arms sticking out of where the ears would be, you know, because they don't have like the full conceptual understanding of how to draw like a torso or proportional body parts. But then they all draw like (laughs) stick horses and people riding the horses and like a battle scene with like people getting stabbed from the horses. And it's (laughs) it's just weird. It's 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 weird to often you often separate yourself When you think back in history, you separate yourself from those other individuals like they could not possibly relate to you in your time. And I think it's always good to remember that they are exactly who you are. And that helps give you a little bit better perspective. And instead of, you know, crawling up on some ivory tower of elitism that makes you think I am the best human that ever lived because there's no possible humans that could be any smarter than I am that came before me type of type of existence
0: yeah it's i mean looking at you know statues and things too the art really took a dive during the dark ages or something (laughs) i don't know it was
1: it was just what the preferred pop style was you know like like how we talk about like how music really sucked from like 1999 to 2007 (laughs) (laughs) it was just a period of time. I thought you loved new metal. <laughs> it was just a period of time where like we were trying some new stuff and it just wasn't working out.
0: <laughs> Man, I'm trying to find this these images, but this guy tweets a lot. Oh yeah, he does tweet a lot. Well. Um yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much all. I- oh, the koalas real quick. Uh you mentioned them at the top. I I didn't want to spoil all of our good stuff but i didn't know that koalas had such a hyper specialized diet that it like appears that some of them only eat one species of eucalyptus (laughs) yep (laughs) which is another
1: thing like if there was a climate induced catastrophe that caused all of the extinction of these things you have a lot of creatures like koalas on Australia that are so specialized to one very small niche that if it was a climate-induced disaster, a lot of those creatures should have died off as well.
0: Yeah, there, well, there is one that did die off. There was a, it was essentially the marsupial version of a mole, but it was highly specialized to just dig in sand. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's, like, it doesn't create burrows. It just has the specialization to dig in sand to, to like, it, put look for food. itself in a
1: pile of sand.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but the koalas, because of the fires, because there's not, you know, ritualistic underbrush burning, um, it has, fires have devastated eucalyptus trees so much, and eucalyptus trees do not replenish quickly. Mm-hmm. So for koalas, they're needing to now, um, if they're going to keep the species of koala existing, uh, they've already tried it to get them to eat different species of eucalyptus, but they're trying it with other food sources, giving them fecal transplants (laughs) (laughs) just to keep this dumb little thing alive. What
1: if we give you a bunch of gut bacteria that'll eat
0: other leaves? Will make you want to eat them (laughs) it's crazy like it's not like their body cannot digest it they just don't eat it right
1: like pandas and bamboo you know it's like why are we why are we trying so hard to keep this one animal alive that refuses to try to stay alive on its own
0: (laughs) (laughs) man bamboo grows so fast though yeah true so at least you have that but yeah they there's there's like a couple of uh, panda cubs i guess you would call them at the um at a zoo in tokyo so whenever we watch the news there's always an update on <laughs> what are their names like shanshan Shan and something else <laughs> but they um it are pandas also born in pairs always i think so and they're incredibly tiny even though they are
1: not marsupial birth type of animals like the thing that is born is like the size of what a marsupial born creature would be to be put inside of a pouch or something like that
0: yeah not a not a great evolution there (laughs) we're gonna keep them alive though because they're so darn cute i that's the thing too the they named them like you know shan shan and and something else but it got me thinking somewhere i feel like i've read this that like does China own like every panda? Like they're they're loaning the pandas to different zoos or something? I don't know. I need to look this up. Like, how could I mean they own like
1: the parent pandas? Could you own the offspring I of think, a panda that you don't have in your? country I would think anymore? so, right? I don't know.
0: Maybe between countries, and it's it is like is it a national symbol or just culturally important? I don't know. Just don't just.
1: Just don't get it confused with Winnie the Pooh or call or call President G
0: Winnie the Pooh or you, no. he'll, you'll get in trouble. I would never. I would have that one NBA player yelling at me. <laughs> Mr. Freedom.
1: <clears throat> all right, man. Well, that's all I've got on the Australian megafauna. And uh, that's the, the human the human contribution to its demise
0: yes oh and um humans brought dingoes there five thousand years ago yes so they are just like us
1: yes yes they were brought to the country not uh discovered there and this should all dispel all of the myths that you might have learned in your colonial classes back in the 80s that captain cook discovered australia because like everyone knew australia existed before captain cook even went sailing like it was already called new holland back then so this idea that like oh look he just not only did he discover everything he also discovered australia that's just total revisionist colonial bs
0: right that you know have you seen that meme where like the woman is like reading the newspaper and the the guy's like pulling the The calendar of like, you know, January 2020, and it's supposed to say like January 1984 or something. (laughs) No, I haven't. It's like probably like a Bronco or something. Or no, (laughs) stuff isn't labeled all over the place. Um, But he's like pulling it back. So it's something having to do with COVID, I think. (laughs) But uh, funny one I saw was when Japan announced that they were going to be closing their borders to all foreign visitors. (laughs) <laughs> the guy was pulling it back and it was just January 1633
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey it it's 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 if it was it was such a good hit back then let's just play it back
0: <laughs> man that was a weird thing when i worked in japan too cuz japan you know the american guy i don't know how much you know about him but like i think his name was perry um he showed up at japan and you know at the barrel of a gun was like open your country we're trading with you now <laughs> um, i just
1: discovered you <laughs> <laughs>
0: right but the weird thing like again i've i've mentioned i had very weird co-workers that were you know anytime i tell miho a story she's like they're that's weird <laughs> but they because i was uh bringing like a fresh idea or whatever like hey what if we use slack to communicate or something (laughs) they would call me like captain perry oh (laughs) (laughs) like you're here to you know way to go teach us how way to go fucking colonizer (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it was in an endearing way and it made me very uncomfortable (laughs) oh i love it (laughs) um all right well don't forget to
1: send your questions to Eric so he has to do a solo episode next week. And uh, and until then, we'll talk to you later. Bye.